I was reading an essay a few days ago by a social commentator, and he made the case that no generation in history has been through as much change as we have since the 1960s. Think of all the change in just over half a century. The internet was not around. Email, the smartphone, AI, transportation, post-Christian culture, travel, gay marriage, civil rights, terrorism, globalism, the mapping of the human genome, third-wave coffee, just as significant of a scientific development. All of it, the list is endless. No wonder there is so much social unrest and emotional anxiety. So much change in all sorts of areas, but especially in sexuality. There have been five tectonic shifts in the way we think about and express and process sexuality in the West in just one or two generations. First, sex has been disconnected from childbearing and family. It's easy to forget that birth control, as we know it now, dates back to 1960 when the FDA approved the first oral contraceptive, and it was not until 1972 that the Supreme Court legalized it for single people. Think about that. Just your grandparents, it was illegal for people without a husband or a wife. Planned Parenthood is running an ad campaign in our city. I'm sure you see it all over. It was interesting walking into church tonight from the family parking lot. By the way, if you park there and you're single, that does not mean like I'm in the family of God parking lot. Okay, so just none of this. Seriously, every Sunday. It means like you have a car seat in the back and three appendages that are human beings, you know? Anyway, but I was just walking in with my family, okay? And, um, you know, there's a giant billboard uh, for Planned Parenthood with uh, kind of a, a stereotype of a lesbian woman on the front. And it's right over the empty parking spot that says, Reserve for the Senior Pastor of FBC. By the way, like, why do millennial pastors not have a reserved parking spot? Like, well, I want to talk to our board of directors about that. But, um, but I just thought, man, what an interesting world where I'm walking through the church parking lot and there's an advertisement for Planned Parenthood on the billboard on the way in. For most of human history, it was not an option to experience sexuality without at least a high risk of long-term responsibility. And this has had all sorts of effects on sexuality. Most importantly, it's made the primary purpose of sexuality for most people in and outside of marriage pleasure rather than procreation. Secondly, sex has been disconnected from marriage. It's no longer just for two people in a relationship until death do us part, as it was in almost every single culture down through human history and still is, not only for followers of Jesus all over the world, but for the Dalai Lama and most of Islamic culture and really through most of the world outside of a coastal city like the one you and I call home. Again, all sorts of effects on sexuality, but it's created in anxiety around sexuality because so many people now have soul ties, we'll talk about that in a bit, but without any long-term commitment of I'm with you in this to the end. Third, sex has been disconnected from male-female relationships. It's crazy to me that we're less than two years into the legalization of gay marriage, and the U.S. feels like way longer than that to me, and maybe that's because it's been in the works since the 1980s and the beginning of LGBTQ rights. Fourth, this is the most, I think, radical shift of all. Sex has been disconnected from love, emotion, and relational commitment of any kind. For some people, not for all. Think of an app like Tinder and the kind of swipe right. Is it right or left? I Ah, you answered the question. <laughs> oh, you're the first person all day to answer the question. So now I know. Um, now I know how to pray. So uh, I don't even know who said that, but I just feel bad for you. Sorry. This is supposed to be a safe place. Sorry, I'm tired. Um, but that's the epitome Right, The ethos of that kind of hookup culture, Donna Freitas in her book, The End of Sex, has a great summary of the most recent data, 
And she just writes that more and more people are delaying marriage to focus on their career. In our secular society, work for a ton of people is the new de facto God. It's the meaning and purpose to life. And during that hiatus, which lasts anywhere from 10 to 20 or more years post-graduation, most people still want sex, but with no love, emotion, or relationship, all of which are time-consuming, hard work, messy, exclusive, require limitations, sacrifice, money, all of that. Eventually, most people want to tie sex to commitment and a loving relationship, but right now, many people just don't have the time. Now, with all four shifts, none of this is new. People have been sleeping together outside of marriage and like getting around the double pink line for a very long time. Prostitution is an ancient right. Single bars are nothing new at all in our city or anywhere. Gay relationships are all over Greek mythology. Even gender fluidity has a long history in indigenous culture, long before the Stonewall riots in New York. What's new is that more and more people pitch these shifts as moral progress, as liberation, Um, Think of the language of sexual liberation from the oppression of tradition and religion and gender roles and gender itself and pre-Freudian superstition. In fact, in a moral 180, more and more people label anybody who still holds to the ancient view of sexuality as behind in the progressive view of human history, right, where progressives are thought of or think of themselves as the moral and intellectual leaders of human history. It's evolutionary psychology, but at an ethical level, as at best behind or worse, as in need of moral and psychological and sociopolitical rebuke and repair. At some point, you just have to ask the honest question, who is judging who in this conversation? All of which leads to a fifth shift that we're just beginning to feel in our city, and that sex has been disconnected from people. Cue the sex robots, the harbinger of the dystopian future. I was recently in New Zealand chatting to a documentary filmmaker and uh, at this church, and she's working on a doco, as they call them, that she called 2D Love. And I felt like kind of an idiot, but I had to ask, like, what's 2D Love? Is there, like, th- what's, is it the opposite of 3D Love? What's that? And she told me the story, and I got to see a little bit of her film. And basically, it started in Japan with loner culture, if you know anything about that, breakdown of the family, divorce, all of that, social anxiety. But now it's catching on in New Zealand and Australia and England on the west coast of America. Basically, you pick an anime character to fall in love with or marry, and then you buy a doll of that anime character, how much money you spend on the anime character that you legally marry, it's your waifu or your wife, is a sign of how much you love her or him. So if you spend $1,000 or five or 10 or $20,000, and then you marry and have a relationship with this waifu. New technology is coming on the radar that will enable them not only to have sex with that doll, but with AI to have a virtual relationship with them where they are pre-programmed to say and do what and only what you want them to say and do. One interviewee for the documentary said, you're free from all the responsibilities of being an actual human relationship and to enjoy some sort of acknowledgement from an entity that is not you in your own head. And it would be easy to imagine, I was watching this interview, this as some weird fringe, like, you know, total computer nerd stereotype or whatever, and it was a hipster from Auckland, New Zealand, who's about 28. This is her Anybody watch that? This is Joaquin Phoenix in the L.A. of the future, but it's real. Beautiful people in a cool city with a nice little job, a kind of mustache. Is it in style? Is it not in style? Do we really know anymore? Trendy clothing, the latest Apple earpod or whatever. But think about that movie. Nobody over 40. No mothers. No fathers. No family. Lots of sexualization but he is literally incapable of any kind of human soul-level sexual union. And so people settle for an app with Scarlett Johansson's voice. This is what Huxley said would happen in 1931. Anybody read Brave New World? Whether you're in, Well done. That makes me happy. A lot of you. One of the best sci-fi novels of all time and really one of the most parishant prescient prophetic works of the last century. You know, he writes at the same time as Orwell, and they have two very different visions of a dystopian future. Orwell is 
Well, you know what he is. But Huxley, his vision of the future was a world where a small elite class of super rich people do nothing but eat, play, and have sex all day long while the nameless mass of humanity, you literally don't ever get a name, are the slaves and the servants in the background in like chambers under the ground. Here is your food, sir or ma'am or whatever. There is no family. There is no marriage. There is no monogamy. There is no commitment. The words mother and father are illegal. All children are raised in state-sponsored homes and people just frolic in the beautiful world. That was his vision of the dystopian future of the West. And we are on the cusp of this. Young people, all the data is in. It's really interesting. Young people are having less sex than they have in over 50 years, which at first you think, oh, that's great. We're all following Jesus or something. (laughs) No, until you realize it's become, one, because of porn, which is way easier than sex, and two, because of the effect of the digital age on digital natives, and it's not a slam on anybody under you know, 20 or whatever, but um, more and more, an entire generation where very few people know how to flirt anymore, which means like to have sex with somebody, you kind of have to know how to seduce them, which means you kind of have to know how to have a conversation first, right? <laughs> or you just have to have a crazy six-pack or something. I, <laughs> not that I know, I don't even know which way to swipe, but... Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, th- there is, we laugh about it, but I mean, I mean, hopefully you've read all this stuff, but the effect of just the text message on the ineptitude and inability of a whole generation now to have casual conversation or to know how to, like, have love or romance somebody IRL. And um, this <laughs> shift, this shift is really the canary in the coal mine. This one in particular, which is easy to laugh at, but this, this is a thing all over our city. And it's hitting, I think, on the pain in our society's collective soul around sexuality for all of the idealization and idolatrization of sexuality in the West. There is a staggering amount of pain, wounding, abuse, Anger, violence, dysfunction, fear, attachment theory, attachment disorder, regret, guilt, shame from sex gone awry. You know, I regularly hear people say, "Um, what is the big deal? Just lighten up. It's just sex. Who's ever been hurt by a little sex? To which I want to say, like, not in a caustic way, but in an honest, who hasn't been hurt by sex? Name one person in this room who hasn't been hurt by the five shifts in sex over the last half century. Name one person in your family or your circle of friends who, if they are honest, don't have some kind of a deep pain from a mom who left the family at whatever age, from divorce, from betrayal, from infidelity, from insecurity, from sexual addiction or porn or trust issues in relationships or attachment disorder or if nothing else, just body image insecurity in our meat market culture that is then put onto the filter of Instagram. Our culture's attempt over the last half a century to uncouple sex from family, marriage, gender, relationships, and even from people is at best naive. Whatever you think about sexuality, I would assume you would agree, it is a powerful force inside us. One that we trip, treat flippantly to our own peril. I love this from Ronald Rollheiser. Christians have always struggled with sex, but everyone else has too. No culture Religious or secular, pre-modern or modern, post-modern or post-religious, exhibits a truly healthy sexual ethos. All churches and cultures struggle with integrating sexual energy, if not in their creeds about sex, at least in the living out of those creeds. Secular culture looks at the church and accuses it of being uptight and anti-erotic. This is partly true. But the church might well protest that much of its sexual reticence is rooted in the fact that it's one of the few voices still remaining that are challenging anyone about sexual responsibility. The church could also challenge any culture that claims to have found the key to healthy sexuality to step forward and show the evidence. No culture will take up that claim. Everyone is struggling. 
All that to say, if you're here and you feel like you are struggling with God and sexuality and how in the world do the two fit together, with your sexuality, with your sexual orientation, with your sense of gender identity, with our culture, with the subculture, with the stereotype, with your relationship with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, what your peers are saying to you, with rent in this city, with what you think about gay marriage or this or sex robots. If you're just here and you're struggling, welcome. You are not alone. The odds are you feel like you're alone, in particular if you're not straight or you don't identify with whatever gender, but you're not alone. There are people all around you. If you feel just tension in your heart, if you love Jesus and you follow Jesus, but you open up the New Testament and you read it and you think, whoa, whoa. Like, my friend circle at work all says that's bigotry. And you're just stuck in that you're not alone. If you feel guilt, if you feel shame, you're not alone. If you feel like if anybody knew, you're not alone. And you're welcome here to process all of this with Jesus and his community. But to start, this is just a weird time to have this conversation in. Not only that, but this is a hard conversation for many of us to have. Because for most of us, it touches on a deep place in our soul. Loneliness, our fear of aging, body image, rebellion against authority, confusion over what is, lust, desire, self-control or lack of self-control, faith or doubt, attachment, father wounds, mother wounds, trust issues, even our identity itself. We'll get into this on Saturday and in the class in depth. But you know, one of the running debates between the LGBTQ community and the Jesus community is over identity. Is your sexual orientation who you are or is it simply how you are? Is it a legitimate category of personhood or not? Open debate. I regularly chat with people in our church and there are many whose sexual orientation is toward the same sex. Some of them identify as gay or queer, but they are in our church, they follow Jesus' teachings on sexuality. Some of them are key leaders in our community. Others reject that label or that kind of moniker of gay or lesbian, and we have no position as a church on you know, the language of that. But those that reject the label, I hear a common refrain from them when I have coffee or chat, Um, somebody just said this to me just the other day. My identity, they said, I I think the exact quote was, I am not who I want to have sex with. Now, set that debate aside for a moment, because that's just emotionally loaded. But whatever you think about that, as followers of Jesus, you have to admit, we do identity very differently from the world around us. For us, ours is just kind of basic theology of identity, and we have some teachings on this in the past if you want to ask, but identity for us is rooted in the language of the New Testament in Christ, which means it's not rooted in our sexual orientation or on our gender or in our relationship status or even in our ethnicity or the nation state we're from or in now or our demographic or our subculture or our political party. All of those identities are second, third, fourth tier. That doesn't mean they don't matter. It just means they aren't the most important thing about us. For us, our primary identity, and all I mean by identity is the I that we experience ourselves to be, where our self-worth comes from, the meaning and purpose that we assign to our humanity, and the community that we have a sense of belonging to. For us, our identity is rooted in Jesus and his community. So that's kind of like theology of identity, but what many gay people inside and outside the church are rightfully saying is, hey, listen, okay, fine, but our sexuality is core to our humanity. And with that, I agree. I think Jesus would too. It's core. Whether you are gay or straight or queer, single or in a marriage or post-divorce or a widow or a widower, Your sexuality is core to your felt experience of humanity. It is a powerful energy in you. It's not an option for most of us to just ignore it. 
And I think that's why sexuality has long been a target for the enemy because it is an easy access point to our vulnerability, to the most tender place of who we are in a way that few other things are. I think of that line in the New Testament, quote, they who sin sexually sin against their own body. I'm not even sure exactly what that means, but I think it's that idea. When sexuality goes south, and it goes south a lot, there is a deep, deep pain to which very few of us are immune. So this is just not an easy conversation for a lot of people in the room, and we want to come at it with a ton of sensitivity and compassion. That said, all I really want to do today to kind of start off the conversation before John is here next weekend is one, just kind of name our cultural moment, the five shifts, weird time, two, speak to the pain, and three, with the rest of our time, I just want to frame the conversation that we're about to have over the next few weeks through the lens of Jesus and story. One of the reasons this conversation is so tricky is because as followers of Jesus, we live torn between two stories. We live in the kingdom of God, and we live in the alphabet district, right? Or whatever neighborhood you call home. We come to church on Sunday, and we open the Bible, and then I read the New York Times later at night. Just a little bit of a different perspective. We eat bread, and we drink wine with other followers of Jesus around the table on a Tuesday night or whatever, And then we have lunch Wednesday afternoon with our coworker who's an atheist. And we hear two very different stories about what it means to be human, much less what it means to be sexual or male or female or single or in a marriage or whatever. And um, all I really want to do with the rest of our time is just talk about this idea of sexuality as a story. Now, most of us would agree that Jesus was a master storyteller. Many of his teachings are in the form of parable, which is similar to allegory, but a little bit different. There's no elf in it at any point, or braveheart sword, just none of that. But often, we read Jesus' parables as cute sermon illustrations from a pre-industrial society. Oh, it's about a farmer, and three types of seed, and three types of, or four, whatever, I don't know the Bible, four types of soil, (laughs) whatever. It's not like it's my job, don't worry about it. Um... And then often, if you're anything like me, for years I read those stories and I was confused because a lot of time at the end of the parable or the end of the story, the Pharisees then go out and plot to assassinate Jesus. I'm like, man, are they anti-weeding or something? Like what, why all of the vitriol and violence? Nobody has ever been killed over a cute sermon illustration about a farmer. Why? Because, and it's easy to miss this, two millennia later and all, very different culture. Jesus' stories subverted the dominant narratives of his society. At any point you want to nerd out, just go read Kenneth Bailey or some kind of a Near Eastern scholar and do a compare and contrast between Jesus' stories and the dominant narratives of his society. Jesus tells stories that subvert the dominant narratives of his world under the captivity of an evil creature that he called the devil, a master of deception, or as Jesus called him in one of his teachings, the father of lies. And so many of Jesus' teachings are just stories or statements about reality about how life actually works, about what is the way and what is the truth that will pastor you down the way to life. And this makes sense, as we as human beings are story creatures. Babette Buster, that famous screenwriter, calls human beings narrative animals. Neuroscientists are now saying that the human mind is literally built. You are hardwired to search for meaning and purpose in life, to connect the dots between this random, this haphazard thing, to make sense of chaos. Think of the work that we did over the fall with what psychologists call mental maps. We all live from mental maps. You remember this if you are in your mental map, in your mental dock, you have a mental map, say, for the route to get from your apartment to work tomorrow morning or class or whatever. If your mental map is true, if it corresponds to reality, then in the morning you wake up, you get in your car or on your bicycle or the bus or whatever, and 10, 20, 30 minutes later, you show up at work. If your mental map is not true, if it does not correspond to reality, then you end up three hours later lost in Gresham or whatever it is. 
And in the same way that we have mental maps for how to get to work in the morning, we have mental maps for all of life, for money, for sex, for power, for God, for interpersonal relationships, for politics, for all sorts of things. And if our mental maps, or put another way, if the story that we live into is true, if it corresponds to the reality of the creator's design for the creation, then we end up at our destination, the end goal that pretty much all human beings crave. Jesus called it the kingdom or life to the full. Often in secular society, we call it the good life or utopia. But if our mental maps are not true, if they're based on lies or even on half-truths, then we end up lost or at least off track. Now, the odds are you're sitting here thinking, okay, what in the world does any of this have to do with God and sexuality? Well, here is a conviction of mine. Long before sexuality is about morality, it is about anthropology. And long before it's about anthropology, it's about theology. Put another way, long before it's about right, wrong, what are the commands in the New Testament, how do we exegete Paul's Greek language around same-sex relationships, is it gay relationships, is it gay marriage, is it pederasty, like long before it's about any of that. It's about what does it mean to be a human being? Do I, am I meat or do I have a soul? What is a soul? Is there a God? What is that God's relationship to me? Is there design or intent in the universe? And this is what Jesus does in pretty much every area. He tells stories that, again, subvert the dominative narratives. For example, Matthew 19 hopefully is open in your lap. We don't have time tonight to do the textual work. We'll actually come back to Matthew 19 on Saturday, in-depth textual work. There's all sorts of background and history and culture. Just read it with me. Matthew chapter 19, verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee, went into the region of Judea on the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now notice, this is not a a true question. Like, hey, what do you think, Jesus? What do you actually, what's your wisdom? What's your perspective? This is a test question, right? So Pharisees do this. I grew up in kind of a conservative religious culture where people would grill you and they would ask a question. What do you believe? And it wasn't actually a question. It was a test. Do you believe the right thing? If so, great. If you say the right thing. If not, let me shame you. Ironically, the only people I ever hear that kind of question or perspective from now are all really progressive people in our city who are the new Pharisees, who regularly, there's no, like when it comes to sexuality, there's pretty much no debate in our, in our city. There's no open dialogue. There's no wrestling with all the new science around a lot of this stuff. There's no conversation. There's no place for experience. It's just this emotionally charged, hashtag, shame, anger, vitriol, weird thing. There's a lot of questions, but they're test questions. Believe the right thing or we will shame you. Interesting. This is exactly what Jesus is getting in a question about God and sexuality. Now, in this case, it's about divorce, and there's lots of background here. Divorce, you would think of first century Jewish culture as conservative, but it was patriarchal, so divorce was actually all over the place. It was a social justice issue, a feminist issue, as it was disproportionate in the benefit of men over against women, as it still is today. All sorts of psychology around that. Men tend to accrue status over time, which makes divorce far better for men than it is for women. Again, I think you don't hear much in our culture, but there's all sorts of science and sociology behind it. And so Jesus has asked this question. There's a technical language here, any and every reason. That was the language from a divorce certificate in the first century, where if you were a man, you could divorce your wife for any and every reason. And he's asked this question, and again, it's a test question. Jesus, you better say, yes, it's lawful. If you're in a marriage and you want out, that's all good, if you're a man. And instead he says this, verse 4, haven't you read? By the way, that is a subtle dig, These are Pharisees, they're Bible teachers, and he's about to quote Genesis 1, the first page of the Bible. So I know that most sarcasm is not Christ-like, it's just mean and pretentious, but I think a little bit is, right? I I like to think that at least. 
Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, oh, here comes storyteller Jesus, the creator, oh, wow, there is a creator, there is a God, quote, Genesis 1, made them male and female, oh, wow, we're created, we're male, we're female, and then he said, quote, Genesis 2, for this reason, oh, wow, there's meaning and purpose to marriage and romance and love, a man will leave his father and mother, oh, wow, there's family, and be united, whoa, what is that, to his wife, not his girlfriend friend or the person on tinder and the two will become one flesh so they are no longer two but one flesh therefore now comes kind of the command well god has joined together let no one separate and the story goes on notice what does jesus do he tells a story or he retells the story of genesis creator creation humanity what is it about i need to be human at the very end he does a little command around his take on divorce and his advocacy for women, for marriage, for all of that. But first, he does the anthropology and the theology and then later, the morality. So all I want to do tonight, this is not a Bible teaching, this is just kind of to frame our time. All I want to do is just set side by side the secular story about sexuality over against the story that Jesus and the writers of Scripture tell about sexuality. This is a bit of a daunting task, but this is just my attempt to put language. First off, the secular story. Put simply, the story, at least my interpretation of it, is one, human beings are animals. Or more specifically, we're primates. We're just apes with time and chance on our side. Two, human nature. What is, is. It just is. There's no meaning or purpose to the human body to gender, to sexuality, other than evolutionary function and the propagation of the species. Three, male, female, sex, in the technical sense of that word. It's just plumbing. Four, gender is a social construct. It's imaginary, often developed by the patriarchy to oppress women or older women to oppress younger women. Five, sex, it's just play for grown-ups. It's just a biological release, that's all it is. Love is a feeling of happiness you get from being with another person, or it's a desire, in particular a sexual desire, for another person. Marriage, again, a social construct. From around the Byzantine era, we don't really know, often to do with tribal alliance, commerce, money, patriarchy, oppression of women and children, and so on. Monogamy is not natural. You rarely see it in nature. In fact, according to evolutionary psychology, nature, and it's ironic to me how nature is a proper noun in so much of the literature right now, as if it's a sentient being, has, quote, designed, that language is literally used, via natural selection to the male body in particular to get our sperm into as many women as possible, again, for the propagation of the species. The purpose of marriage, now that the earth is overpopulated and we know better than religion and tradition, well, there's not really a purpose, but I guess it would be happiness. If you're into marriage, great. If it's same sex, different sex, unisex, whatever, you do you, fantastic. If you're not into marriage, no worries. There are plenty of other options for sexuality. Divorce, or as Chris and Gwyneth so eloquently rebranded it, a conscious uncoupling is the enlightened decision for two people who are no longer compatible or who, quote, grow out of love. Because again, the point of marriage is happiness. So if you're not happy in a marriage as defined by you don't feel good or want another person sexually, then, oh man, just start over, move on. If you, ha- if you have kids, it's kind of a bummer. But you know, one of the most important stories you have to teach Your children is to be true to yourself. The Bible and authority. Well, the Bible is a collection of human writings with some great ideas in it, but it's also full of sexism, racism, patriarchal oppression, anti-erotic ideas about sex, etc. And any and all forms of external authority are oppressive if they are imposed on you by somebody else. Keep your laws off my body, politician, pastor, parent and repressive if they are imposed by you. And they will keep you from happiness. The overall meaning in life, well, technically, if we're brutally honest, there is none. Life is a glorious, or not so glorious, depending on how much money you have, accident. There's no creator, which means there's no creation. All we're left with is nature. 
which means there's no design per se with intent. There's just tooth and claw. So now that we have an earth that's full, just feel free to come up with whatever meaning for your life you want. Ideally, something to do with progress that kind of ties into evolutionary theory. And we all want, we're good people, we want to make the world a better place. But we don't need God to progress as a species toward our world of no sexism, no racism, no poverty, where we upload to the cloud and live forever as homo deus. God is a dead weight holding us back from enlightenment now, as Pinker would say. And if you can't come up with a cause to give your life to, that's okay. You live in Portland. We have CBD-infused kombucha. We have great coffee. Just ride your bicycle to brunch, hang out with your friends, and swipe right while it lasts. That's a little cynical. Sorry, that last part. Now, this is my attempt to put language to a story that at least I hear all week long. We're inundated with this in a class at PSU or Lewis and Clark, in a sitcom on CBS, in an article in our newsfeed, in a post on Instagram, in a line in a rom-com or a throwaway comment from a coworker or even a Bridgetown community member. It's easy just to assume this is reality. But I would argue this is a story. This is a reading of the data points of science and history and religion and the human experience. But is it the real true story? For more and more people, this story just isn't working. I've been reading a lot of poetry lately and bird watching. I don't, am I just getting old? I have no... Is that Sabbath or just homeschool aging? I don't know. Um, but I've been reading a lot of poetry. Mary Oliver was this last week. Ah, oh, my heart. And uh, I was at Powell's the other day, and I was walking through the poetry section, and I, this book caught my eye, and I remember it from a few years ago. I saw this when it came out. Here's the title. Anyone can paint their nails because gender is imaginary. Everything is meaningless. Love is a myth. Sex is gross. We all die alone. An ironic quote from Genesis. Our stupid bodies will soon return to the dust from whence they came. Oh, man, I love poetry. And I say that, and I'm not, not to make fun, like, I don't know Jamie Mortara, but I'm guessing that is coming from a deep place of pain. That's trauma speaking. That's hurt. That's anger. That's betrayal speaking. But I just think, every time I see this, and I see more and more stuff like this, there is this growing body of negative rhetoric around sexuality in our culture not coming from Christians. Christians love to talk about sex. Our generation especially, we're like, the song of songs, it's literal, it's not allegorical, let's read it all the time. Like, (laughs) pastor, talk about your sex life, please. Like, literally, somebody texted me last night, can't wait to hear your sex tips tomorrow. I'm like, (laughs) it's not when I'm... (laughs) That's next weekend. Um, (laughs) The negative rhetoric is not (laughs) coming... From the, ch- from the church, it's coming from the world. Even th- I don't watch much TV, but, and one of the reasons I don't watch much TV is because most of it is soft porn now. And I think it's really interesting, the portrayal of sexuality just a decade ago to now. I mean, a decade ago, it was kind of the Megan Fox, bra and underwear, happy sexuality. But more and more, um, the portrayal of sexuality is dark, it's angry, it's non-emotional, it's not even romantic, it's not flirtation, it's just this, hey, you, meet, now, it, it's really dark. I can't watch most of what's on Netflix right now, because it's just, not only is it dark, it's just really messed up. And I, I think this growing body, it's a sign that for a ton of, we are only 50 or 60 years into this stuff. We're just now starting to reap the consequences. It's a sign. Okay, something is, this is not working for a lot of people. I love this um, from Melinda Selms. Underneath the pop and fizzle of sexological enthusiasm lies a fundamental despair. Not necessarily about life itself, but about the body. This seems counterintuitive. Surely, the sexual revolution is about the celebration of the body over and against the pretense that love ends below the neck. Yet, beneath all the pageantry of free sex and self-love, there is a fundamental belief that the body doesn't mean anything, that it is insignificant in a literal sense, signifying nothing. You can do anything that you like with it. 
you can pleasure it with a vacuum cleaner or get a drunken stranger in an alleyway to whip it, and you can give it away to anyone for any reason. It's just a sort of wet machine, a tool that, yes, I just read that in church, a tool that you can use in exchange for whatever purpose suits your fancy. In order to believe this, you must either accept, A, that your body is not you, it's just a shell or a juicy robot, that the real you, the disembodied ghost controls, or B, that there is no such thing as human value or dignity. It's just a nice pretense that we make because we are terrified of this senseless and nihilistic universe. Ironically, Christianity, which has always been accused of putting God before man, stands alone amongst a host of modern philosophies declaring that man is a unified, complete being composed of both a mind with a free will and a body, all of which has dignity and meaning. Humanism, after the promise of its first flowering, has not managed to produce an integrated and holistic understanding of the human person. It has produced dualisms, disembodied rationalisms, and mindless, literally, materialisms. That woman can preach. That's a long quote. Thank you for your patience. I think that is getting at where we're at right now. So, all I want to say, that's a story. The secular thing, it's a story. Is it the real true story? Is there a better story, a more true story? Let me attempt to put language to Jesus and the, writer of, the writers of Scripture story just to offer you another perspective. One, human beings are made in the image of God. Yes, we are like the animals, for sure. But we are just as much or more like God than we are like apes. I was at the zoo a few days ago the magic kingdom. There, was, there were apes there. There were primates there. And I thought, that is not me. I, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I can't even grow a beard. That is not, that, that, I am not that. I am as much like God as I am like that animal. And what separates us from the animals is not just our IQ and the dexterity of our fingers. It is what the Bible calls your spirit. The most important part of you, what makes you you and makes you and I human, is something that ironically is immaterial, that does not show up in a laboratory or under a microscope. Your will, which scientists still can't figure out. Your volition, your desire, what you want, what you don't want your emotional energy, fear, pain, love, hate, anger, forgiveness, mercy, compassion, all of it is invisible. And nobody in their right mind would say it's not true and real. Because we are as much creation, we are not coincidence. Two, human nature. The way that we are is good but bent. We are not the way we were created to be. We're good. Whether you follow Jesus or not, whether you're an upstanding citizen or on death row, you have human dignity and value and worth. Whether you are brilliant and have privilege or whether you will never speak a word in your life due to severe mental handicap, you have worth, dignity. You are a value before God. But at the same time, all of us, are messed up. All of us have stuff in us where we want stuff that nobody should want. And we're off, we're good, and we're messed up. Three, male, female, sex. God designed your body and he made you as a man or as a woman. And in the language of Genesis, your maleness or your femaleness is good and it is blessed. It's good to be a woman in a woman's body. It's good to be a man in a man's body. For those of you struggling with your gender identity, we recognize, we honor your attention. We honor your wrestle. We recognize the pain when your, your psychology and your physiology do not align. But in the paradigm of the scripture, there is male, there is female. For gender, men and women are equal in essence. Again, this is kind of check, okay, we get it. Let's get people to catch up at Nike or whatever and in the church. But we forget feminism was started by followers of Jesus. 
This is still a radical idea around most of the world, that men and women are of equal worth before God, even if we are not the same in design. Yes, in the sense of our biology. Yes, there are all sorts of social constructs around gender, no doubt, but you cannot separate design from function. So our gender comes with some very simple roles and responsibilities, most of which have to do with family and child rearing. Followers of Jesus disagree on the specifics of how to work that out, which is fine, but what we all agree on is that gender is not imaginary, but is a part of our humanity. Sex, here is the widest gap, I think, in perspective. For Jesus and the writers of the Bible, when two people make love, it is way more, not less, but it is way more than play for grown-ups. Something happens at a soul level where two people become, in Hebrew, in Genesis, it's this word echad, or one flesh. Two separate autonomous human beings become one. It is the interpenetration, not just of two bodies, but of two souls. There's all sorts of new science out right now on attachment theory, which is really a crisis right now. Again, we don't read about this a lot in the news, but we're the first adult generation that is the byproduct of divorce, and in spite of the ridiculous PR campaign, ask any psychologist worth their salt to explain to you what happens to a child when mom and dad break up, and it is devastating. So we're a massive like epidemic of attachment disorder across our nation right now. If you're here and you just feel like intimacy is a struggle for you, and you get close to somebody and just you feel like you have to push away and distance yourself, or you just have to smother people and you go from relationship to relationship. You just have anxiety and you can't relax or you just feel confused and you don't know how to do it. Don't feel guilt. Don't feel shame. This is across the room here tonight. Followers of Jesus, good people, educated people, wealthy people. This is a pain in our society. All that to say, there's all this new science out on it right now. I was reading um, a book on attachment theory just recently, two secular doctors. And at one point... um, They just had this recent study of brain scans where two partners who were sexually active break up and the same part of the brain lights up in the scan as when they break a bone. This is just neurobiological language for echad, two people, one flesh. We call this soul ties. When you make love to another person, you tie your souls together. Again, inside of marriage, this is beautiful. Outside of marriage, this is dehumanizing and destructive. It's easy to think that followers of Jesus have a lower view of sex than the world, but it's actually the reverse. We have a much higher view of sex. We don't think this is just recreation or even procreation. We think this is union. We're in the covenant of marriage. We deepen and we develop intimacy between two souls into one. On that note, love is far more from us for us than emotion. It's most definitely not the desire to have sex with somebody. That's what the New Testament writers call lust, and Jesus has a lot to say about lust in the Sermon on the Mount. Love, this is my best one-sentence kind of definition of a New Testament theology of love. It is a decision of the heart to delight in another soul and to will their good ahead of your own no matter what the cost is to yourself. Again, very different to lust. Melinda Salims again says, think of what promiscuity does to a person's understanding of human love. You make a gift of yourself. Let's say you do it casually. What are you saying? I'm not worth much, but fortunately neither are you, so let's have some fun. Very different. Marriage for us is not a contract that you opt out of when you're no longer happy, but a covenant where you vow before God and your community to love again and again, to will the good of another ahead of your own in sickness and in health, for richer, for poor, as long as you both shall live. The purpose of marriage is not just happiness. That is the byproduct, in our frame, that is the byproduct, hopefully, of a healthy marriage. The purpose, why you go into marriage, is, in my frame, five things. One, friendship, right? To the ache of loneliness. It's just not good for man to be alone, Genesis 1. Two, partnership. 
In the Genesis story, it's for a man and a woman together in equality and partnership to spread Eden, to spread the shalom of God out to the four corners of the earth. Three, family, like to increase in number. Four, sexuality, to enjoy and experience your sexuality in the context of covenant. Because, and this is our frame for us and the writers of the Bible, the only relational container strong enough to hold the nuclear power of echad, of sex, of two souls, one, and good enough to frame the beauty and glory of sex is a man and a woman in a lifelong covenant until death do us part. And five, in the wake of the Paul fall, we now have spiritual formation as one of the main reasons for marriage. To bring out the best in you. We hear that a lot. And it's to bring out the worst in you. And trust me, it will do that more than the other one. And in the safe place of loving until death do us part, to work out your crap as you follow Jesus into maturity and health and love. My wife, who was here last hour, she knows the worst of me. You think I'm bad? You have no idea how much I hide from you, all right? <laughs> she knows the deepest part of my hypocrisy, my addiction, my dysfunction, the habits of sin in my mind and my personality. She knows the worst of me. And all of it comes out. You can't hide in a marriage. All of your crap comes out. And... <laughs> Carol, that was the right thing to say at the right time. Thank you. And yet, next month we've been together for 20 years. We're still... <laughs> I don't know. Applaud for her. That, she's not here. But uh, she's still alive and she has a good therapist. It's okay. But um, we're, there is something profound about that. To see the worst in somebody to forgive the worst in somebody, to still love the good and the beautiful in somebody, and to walk with that person into their future. That's what the purpose of marriage is. Divorce, while it's anything but a clean start in life, it is the rupture of soul ties, the breaking of covenant, the betrayal of trust, the hurt of children, and the death of a marriage. And there are times when a marriage dies. Some of you in the room have already been through it before you're even 30. And there are times when there's just no way to save it due to adultery with no change or abuse or abandonment. But there's no point to like reframe it. It is still a death. T and I were hosting a dinner recently with a number of young couples and the conversation turned to how many young couples we all know who are already divorced. T quoted this line she'd read in some book where a grandmother said to her granddaughter, I come from a generation that fixed things when they were broken. And I've just been sitting with that for the last few days. Like, I don't fix anything. I have, like, recycle and order something off Amazon, you know? I think about my grandfather. My dad doesn't know how to fix anything either. We're, like, musicians and readers or something. We're just no help around the house. So I remember, it's a generational sin, but I remember... <laughs> When my grandfather would come, my mom's dad, my poor mom always had a list of like to-dos around the house because grandpa was the only one that knew how to fix anything. I thought, man, we're, that's sort of, we just don't know how to fix things. And we give up way too easy. And I said, a lot of sensitivity. I'm looking out at people in our community. I love care about you, you've already been through divorce, or you're in a marriage right now, or you're separated, and you don't even know what the future is. I just hear this story all the time. So much love for you. But there's no way to reframe it. It is a death. The Bible and authority, well, the scriptures are a library of divine and human writings that tell a unified story that leads us to Jesus, but more, they are the mental maps by which we navigate reality. Authority is tragically used and abused all too often, but when it's used well, it is a conduit to pass down not only the cumulative wisdom of generations as to how to flourish and thrive, but to reign in our flesh and for all of us to experience what Jesus called life to the full. Finally, the overall meaning of life is love. But not love as defined by kind of our progressive city of tolerance or tipping well, 
but, which is all great. We're for both things. Um, but love in the sense of the decision to delight in another, to will their good ahead of your own, to live in loving relationship with God, with each other, with the earth itself, as we partner with God and each other to spread his love, his rule, his reign to every corner of the globe. Now, all I want to say is notice, that's a story. It's a very different story. It's a very different reading of the data points of science and history and religion and the felt experience of God and sexuality. You just have to ask at some point, which story do you believe? It makes sense to me that Jesus would end a lot of his teachings or a lot of his stories with this line, the kingdom of God has come near. Paul later defined the kingdom of God as three things, righteousness, peace, and joy. Righteousness is kind of my one-line definition. It's just right relationships. And then notice, repent and believe the good news. The word repent is metanoia in Greek. It can be translated rethink reality. It's as much of an intellectual word as it is a moral word. And the word believe, a ton of scholars argue right now that believe is not the right English translation because we believe in like, it means like it's in the mental furniture of your mind. That a better word is to trust in or to put your faith in. So Jesus' invitation is, hey, let me tell you a story about sex, about money, about whatever that subverts the dominant, dominant narratives of your society And then his invitation, if you want to experience righteousness, right relationships, joy, and peace, is to rethink reality. Rethink what you think you know about sex, about gender, about marriage, about whatever it is, divorce. Rethink all, just open your mind, rethink it. And then the invitation is to put your faith in his vision of human flourishing. Right now I'm reading a book on developmental psychology for our next practice called Stages of Faith by a secular, kind of the seminal work on this topic. And he argues, psychologist, he argues that faith is not a religious thing, it's a human thing, that all human beings have faith. That it is impossible to live without faith. Little faith, major faith, little faith. How many of you are really stressed right now about how to get home to your apartment tonight? Yep, I'm not touching on a nerve. This is not a loaded conversation. You're not stressed. Why? Because you have faith in your car or your bicycle or the Uber app or public transportation. You have faith that, let's say you drove here, that out there somewhere your car is still there, that you have a key somewhere in your purse, that it's the right key, that you will get in your, now you're getting all stressed. You're like, oh no, is it still there? What? We are downtown. That you'll get there, that it will still be there that you'll open it up, that the gas gauge is right, you'll have gas, the car will start. You're like, now you're just so stressed out of your mind. And that it will get you home. It will get you to your destination. That's why you relax right now and you don't even think about it because you have faith. You put your trust in your car to get you to your destination. Little faith. We have little faith and we have large faith. So the question is not, do you have faith? It's who or what do you put your faith in? when it comes to sex or whatever the topic is. Do you put your faith in Jesus and his teachings in the writings of the Bible? Or do you put your faith in Richard Dawkins or Oprah or the liturgist podcast or whatever blogger you're into? It is faith. You've not been where you want to go. So you have to trust somebody else who has or who claims to have been there to more righteousness, more joy, and more peace. Jesus' invitation is to trust him, to follow him, to follow his way of life, his teachings, his truth. Because for Jesus, the end of that road is righteousness, peace, and joy. This is not a hard conversation. This is not an easy conversation for any of us to have. It's not fun. It's definitely not fun for me. There are some teachings I give because they're brewing in my heart and others because as an elder at our church, one of my responsibilities is to guard and guide the life and the teaching of the doctrine of Bridgetown Church. I stand before God. I will answer not to you, but to him one day for that. And so this, in a city like our city, this is something we have to talk about on a regular basis. Hence, here we are. 
But this, honestly, for me, is not just coming from a place of, like, this is my job, I have to do it. I love you. And I do not believe that sin leads to human flourishing. I don't think it leads to happiness. I don't think it leads to righteousness. I don't think it means leads to shalom. I have a weird job where I get access to a lot of people's souls. Like, I'm guessing with your job, you don't just randomly sit down with, like, a client from work and be like, so, how are you? Great. How's your soul? You know, I'm guessing that's not like your first question on the sales call or whatever. Maybe it is. So it's weird. But the beauty of that is I just get to have a lot of deep, vulnerable conversations with people. And I'm telling you, I don't know a single person, not one, who is living into the secular story of sexuality and is full of righteousness, peace, and joy. What I hear when people are honest is pain, heartache, anger, insecurity, people not having sex at all for all the obsession over it, fear, loneliness. I I hear a very different story. And I love you. And any love that I have for you, especially when I'm tired, is from Jesus. Um, (laughs) I love you. You are an amazing people. That you're here. That you would even have this conversation. Some of you here who aren't straight or don't identify as one gender, whatever, that you're here, that you're up for the conversation, well done. Some of you are here, you're not even followers of Jesus yet. You don't even know. You think this sounds crazy to you, and you're here, well done. You have an emotional wound that makes this whole conversation just a trigger for you, and you're still here. Well, God, love you. You're amazing. And I want you to flourish and thrive, and I want it too. And all I really want to invite you to in the week ahead is to get your heart in the right place before God. Tyson is coming. John Tyson's coming from New York next weekend. He'll be with us all weekend. Saturday, we have the God and Sexuality event. Starts at 9 a.m. at Old Laurelhurst Church, right on the other side of the river. Session one. John is one of, if not the best teachers, I think, in the English-speaking world. It is an honor for him to come out and spend the weekend with us. Please come. A bunch of it will not be on the podcast. You have to be there. This is not an internet conversation. We don't have a stance. It's a family conversation. And session one's on sexual formation. Session two on Jesus and the gay community. Session three on Jesus, gender, and the trans community. Next Sunday, we'll be teaching on marriage at the 10 and the 5 and singleness at the 7 p.m. Um, you don't want to miss it. Please be here. And I say that because he has the full endorsement of our elders. His work on all of this is really good. So we brought him out. We think he could do a better job than I could with it. And you're like, yes, he could. Um, that's fine. And so he has our full endorsement. This is not an outsider's opinion. This is what we as a church believe. Between now and Saturday morning at 9 a.m., would you just go before God, wherever you're at, and ask for God to give you his heart? And let's just... Save all of your questions for later. Just start with heart posture. At one point, Jesus, facing a really hard thing, said, not my will but yours be done. If you could get your heart there by Saturday morning, not just your body, that would be an amazing step forward for you and for all of us. Because this is life. And ultimately, this is about story, and it's about faith. What story do you put your faith in? So as we sing tonight, you know, there's a Catholic writer who has this, he's a sociologist, he has this frame of public belief, private belief, and core belief. Your public belief is what you say you believe, right? Which is Harvey Weinstein, you know, with the women's rights pen at the Grammys or whatever it was. Um, Then you have your private belief, which is what you think you believe, Then you have your core belief, which is what you actually believe and live into, but it may or may not come to your conscious mind, and it normally comes out in suffering. So you might claim that you believe in Jesus' vision of sexuality, but at your core level, you don't. Do anybody deal with this? I sure do. There are times that I'm like, I'm orthodox, I'm whatever, I believe the New Testament, I stand with Jesus and his teachings— But then, like, I think, you know, I would be really happier in a different marriage. Or if I could just have sex with more people, man, I would be such a happier person. Or I think whatever the narrative from society is, it's in here. And at times, it's even down there. 
And the invitation is just again and again and again to come back to Jesus, our rabbi, and say, you are the way and the truth and the life, and I trust your judgment over my own. I trust your vision of reality over my own. I trust that you are love. That sin does not lead to life, that you, Jesus, lead to life. And I put my faith and I live with my body into your vision. To end, I just want to read a scripture over you. I want to ask that in the week ahead, Romans 12, 1 and 2, would you memorize this? Just stick this on your phone or on a 3 by 5 card um, if you're over 50. And, um, <laughs> or just at least, would you meditate on this? I just can't think, this has been in my mind for days, I just can't think of a better scripture to frame this. Would you read this out loud with me? Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Notice the noun, offer your what to God? Your bodies. Not just your mind, not just your mouth, not just your doctrine, offer your bodies. We live in a city that worships sex. Sex in our city is a soteriology. It is a doctrine of salvation. People look to sex and sexual identity for happiness. And sex is great, but it's not that great. It cannot carry the emotional and spiritual weight of your ache for happiness or the quench for loneliness or meaning and purpose and peace in your life. It just can't. As a gift in the right context and covenant, beautiful. As a God... It is a cruel taskmaster. Thank you for listening to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. We are in the middle of a year-long capital campaign to raise money to buy a building on the inner core, an old, beautiful, historic church building about a mile from where we meet right now. If you have been blessed at all by this podcast and would like to give to that over and above your regular giving to your church, wherever you call home, we would love to have you participate in that. Feel free to visit bridgetown.church give for more information. Thanks for listening.